First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, we thank you that you are a God who has revealed yourself to us through your word. Father, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us through the stories of men and women of long ago. Men and women who failed in many ways like we have failed. And yet, Father, we see your grace and your mercy reaching out to them even as it reaches out to us. Father, we thank you that even though we are broken, that you are a God who mends broken things. And so, God, would you work in those broken places in our hearts, even today, as we study your word? Would you speak to us and help us to hear what you want to say? And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to 2 Samuel 18? Uh, the passage that uh, my brother Chuck just read for us, and I'm so glad that, uh, that my big brother was the one who read the scriptures for us today, because I actually was not the one who asked him to do that, and yet that just worked out perfectly, uh, because I do want to tell you a story about him. <laughs> and uh, this, this is a story about when my brother uh, Chuck and his wife Holly uh, got married, and they went away on their honeymoon. And while they were away, uh, my brother-in-law Jay and I uh, decided it would be fun if we snuck back into their house while they were gone and just, you know, just kind of left them a few gifts, shall we say, for when they returned. And, uh, and so I can't even remember now all the things that we did. Uh, it kind of feels like we might have gotten a little carried away with it. But, uh, but we did several things. I remember uh, filling up like a hundred solo cups and putting them by their door to their bedroom. So they had to take the time to empty every single one before they could even reach the, the door. Uh, I remember we put ping pong balls on all their fan blades. So whenever they turned the fans on, they would shoot around the room. Uh, we left like hundreds of ping pong balls in every drawer and cabinet all over the house. Pretty sure we filled their sinks with jello. Um, I, I can't even remember all. I, I, there's just so many things that, that we, oh, we put an alarm clock up in their air vent uh, set in the middle of the night so it would go off and um, just, just mean-spirited things. And so, uh, you know, when they uh, returned home, uh, it was a homecoming for them. I'm sure in some ways they were glad to be home, but also it was kind of a, a bittersweet homecoming as well. And, you know, in this story, King David also has a homecoming, and his homecoming was also bittersweet for very different reasons. If you remember the story, David has been driven out of Jerusalem because his son Absalom has uh, staged a coup and has usurped his throne. Last week, we looked at the story of the battle that took place between David's men and Absalom's army. And we saw how poor Absalom died. You remember that Absalom was so proud of his long, flowing, beautiful hair. Not that I'm jealous of that hair or anything. Uh, but if you remember, his hair ended up being his undoing because he was riding on a mule. His mule went under uh, the branches of a tree and his long hair got caught in the branches of that tree and the mule went on without him. And in a similar way, at that moment, the kingdom that he had tried to steal, rode off without him 
as well. David's general, a man named Joab, disobeyed David's order and ran to Absalom while he was still hanging from the tree and drove three spears through his chest. And so with that, the war against Absalom was over and David's kingdom was saved. And so today we read about the return of the king. The return of King David to his palace and to his throne. But again, his return was a bittersweet return because he was distraught over the death of his son. This is the return of a broken-hearted king. And just as we walked with David a few weeks ago as he was driven out of Jerusalem, we're going to walk with David again now as he's walking back to Jerusalem. We're going to meet again all of the people that David meets. And along the way, we're going to be reminded that there is another king, a far greater king than David, who is one day going to return. And we will all have a meeting with that king. There are at least three parts of this story I believe we can learn from. And first, I want us to see we can learn from the safety of the kingdom. The safety of the kingdom. We said earlier that by this time the battle was over. Absalom was dead. And so in effect, David's kingdom had been rescued. But at the very beginning of our story, we know all of these things as the reader. But David does not yet know any of them. And David, if you recall, wanted to go out with his men to the battlefield, but they persuaded him to stay behind where it would be safe in the city of Mehanim. And so he's standing there waiting in the gate of the city, waiting anxiously for any word to come from the battlefield on what had transpired. And when our story opens, there are two runners that are about to come to David with the news. In verse 19, we read about Ahimaaz, who had earlier risked his life to bring David word about Absalom's plans, and he volunteers to be the one to take David the news about what had happened in the battle. He believes that it is good news. You can hear that in, in what he says in verse 19. He says, let me run now and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. He thinks that this is good news, that David is going to receive this news well, but Joab, who knows David a lot better than Ahimaaz does, said, Not today, bud. You're, you're not going to take him news today because the king's son has died. And Joab knows that that's all David is going to be concerned about. And he doesn't want to put this priest's son in danger. Maybe you recall some other times when people ran to David thinking that they had good news to bring him and things didn't work out so well for them. And Joab doesn't want anything bad to happen to this young man. And so instead of sending him, he wants to send a foreigner, a Cushite man, to take David the news. And so this unnamed Cushite runs off to tell David about the battle and about what happened to Absalom. But Ahimaaz would not be denied so easily. He, he begs and he pleads with Joab to let him run anyway. He literally wants to be an also-ran. And finally, maybe just to get him off his back, Joab says, okay, fine, you can go. And so these two runners are making their way to David. They take different paths to get there. And Ahimaaz, even though he was the second one to start running, ends up making it to David just before the Cushite does. And David's watchman sees 
Ahimaaz coming. He recognizes who it is by his stride. David says he's a good man. He must be bringing good news. And sure enough, as he gets close, he yells out, all is well, because in his mind, all was well. And when he gets there, he falls down before David, and he gives him the battle report there in verse 28, the end of that verse. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my Lord the King. And in the next verse, we see what David's chief concern was. He asked in return, is the young man Absalom safe? And of course, Ahimaaz knew the answer to that question, but Joab had commanded him not to say anything, and so he tries to evade the question. He says, well, king, I saw a tumult. There was a lot of commotion going on, but I really didn't see what happened. And then he tells him just to stand there to the side. Shortly after that, the second runner, the Cushite man, comes running up to David. He leads with the main story again. He says, it's good news, king. God has avenged you against your, your enemies. The good guys have, have won. But then David asked him the very same question that he asked the first man. He said, is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite, who was under no orders from Joab to withhold information, comes out with it. And he gives David the whole truth. Now he says it in as kind of way as you possibly could. He doesn't use Absalom's name. He doesn't even use the word dead, but he gets the idea across in verse 32. He said, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do you harm be like that young man. We're going to talk about how David received this news and just a moment, but the reality is what the Cushite said was true. Absalom was an enemy of David, an enemy of the Lord, and the Lord had delivered his enemies into his hand. We know that the Lord is the one who caused these things to turn out in this way, because back in chapter 17, the storyteller tells us that. If you turn back to chapter 17, verse 14, for just a moment, and look at the end of that verse, this is what we read. For the Lord had purpose to defeat the good advice of Ahithophel to the intent that the Lord might bring disaster on Absalom. So the reason that Absalom ignored the advice of his top counselor and instead used a terrible battle strategy is because it was the Lord's providence. Because it was the Lord's intent to bring Absalom down and to restore David to the throne and to his kingdom. And we're talking about the safety and the security of the kingdom. And ultimately, for the kingdom to be safe, the enemies of the kingdom had to be defeated. And church, it's the same way with God's kingdom. We know that the Lord is building his kingdom. Jesus founded it, started it upon his arrival, and it has been growing ever since. One day we know that the Lord Jesus will return, that he will rule and reign on the earth forever. In Revelation 20, we read that one day the Lord Jesus will take our ultimate enemy, Satan, and he will be thrown into the lake of fire where he deserves to be. Is anybody else looking forward to that day? That day is, is coming. 
Because just like was the case for David and his kingdom, for the kingdom of God to be eternally safe and eternally secure, the enemy must be deposed and destroyed. And one day he will be. And here's the takeaway for us now. Because the kingdom is safe and secure in the hands of the Father, we who know Christ have nothing to fear. This is what Jesus said in Luke 12, 32. He said, Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We don't have to fear anything, church. We don't have to fear the coronavirus. We don't have to fear the stock market plunge. We don't have to fear anything that is happening in our world today. That this is not because Jesus has said that nothing bad will ever happen to us. We know that in this fallen world, bad things can and do happen even to followers of Christ. But the reason Jesus says not to fear is because no matter what happens here, it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. And the kingdom is safe and secure. Because we know that this is where all of this is heading. The kingdom is safe in the hands of the Father. We who know Christ should have a peace in our hearts that the unbelieving world cannot understand. We learn from the safety of the kingdom in this story. We can also learn from the sadness of the king. The sadness of the king. It's really hard I think, to even put into words the intensity of the emotions that are going on in David's heart in this text. Because as soon as he hears the news that Absalom is dead, he goes up into the watchman's gate above, or chamber above the gate, and he cries out in verse 33. Look at the end of that verse. He says, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. You think about all of the famous things that David wrote that are recorded for us in the Bible, things that he said. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The words that he said to the giant Goliath that day when he said, You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. And so many more statements of David that we can mention. But this cry here, Oh, my son Absalom, is one of the most memorable things that David ever said. And it's by far one of the saddest. This is the heart-wrenching cry of a parent who has lost their child. And there are some in this room whose heart knows the pain of that cry. In David's case, there is a reason, I believe, why his cry is recorded for us in Scripture. And I don't think that it is only so that we can be helped as we walk through our own grief. I believe, as others have said as well, that we are meant to hear his cry and to reflect on David's life up to this point and how he ended up here. Because mixed with David's grief in this cry it is also the added torment of David's guilt. I think that's why David says here, if only I had died in your place, because David knows 
That in part, it was his sin that had brought all of this about. His sin with Bathsheba, his sin with Uriah, that invited God's hand of discipline upon David and his family. And so over all of this story is what God said back in 2 Samuel 12, after his sin, when God told David about the consequences that were going to come, how the sword was going to fall on his household. And so even as he hears the news of Absalom's death, he knows that this is God's sword falling on him yet again. This is not to negate Absalom's own sins or the fact that Absalom was responsible for that sin, but David also knows that he has contributed to all of this. That his sins of of commission, the things that he did have contributed, his sins of omission, the things that he should have done that he did not do, also contributed to all of this. And so David cries out and he wishes to trade places with his son because like many of us, he wishes that he could go back and undo the things that he has done in the past, but he knows that he can't. And I think that all of us have things in our life like that, don't we? Things that we wish we could go back and change. But we cannot change the past. We cannot undo what we have done any more than King David could. What we can do with our past failures and our past sins is we can take them to the cross. We can take them to a Savior who has died for all our sin. And know that his grace is sufficient to forgive. His grace is sufficient to restore. And his grace is able to help us to stop looking behind us. And as Paul wrote in Philippians 3, to start reaching ahead to the things that are in front of us. You know, what's more helpful, I think, than examining our past, which we cannot change, is examining our present which by God's grace, we still can change. Church, we are meant to take to heart David's cry of agony over his son, and we are meant to act now. In whatever area of our life, God is calling us to change. Something in our life, something in our parenting, something in our marriage that God is calling us to do, the time To make those changes is now so that by God's grace we won't have to experience this painful cry of regret that David experiences here in this story. If we are up on a rooftop right now looking at things that we should not, if we are dabbling in places we should not be, if we are beginning to walk down a road of unfaithfulness that we shouldn't be walking down, now is the time to stop and now is the time to turn around. If right now our kids are showing the signs that Absalom showed, they're starting to display some of our own worst characteristics. Now is the time to act. Church, we can learn, we were meant to learn from the sadness of this king and how he got to this place to begin with. Even though David's mourning for his son Absalom is understandable for all the reasons that we just said, it's also true that David was excessively focused on his own grief and his own loss to the neglect of his soldiers, his men, who had just risked their lives for him. 
The text says when the soldiers got back to the city, they found out that the king was so upset that he was weeping for his son, and they just kind of snuck back into the city almost as if they had lost the battle and instead of won it. He turned the victory into defeat because of how King David was behaving. And so in verse 5, Joab, his general, cannot take it anymore. And so he barges into David's quarters. And look at what he says in verse 5 of chapter 19. Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants who today have saved your life, the life of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives, and the lives of your concubines. He goes on to say, You're, you're acting like you love your enemies and hate your friends. And he says, based on the way that you're behaving, I can tell that if we all died and Absalom was the only one who lived, you would have been just fine with that. And then he comes even more to the point. In verse 7, he tells David, basically, if he does not get off his keister and get out there and sit down in the city gate that very night, he said, every single one of your men, myself included, are going to be gone. Thankfully, David understands that Joab was not kidding. And so he goes and sits down in the city gate, even though his heart was broken. We're not told what David said. I think the implication, though, is that he did thank his men. And you get the sense that the crisis has been averted and David's soldiers remain loyal to him. We won't spend long on verses 9 through 18, but these verses do give us a window in some of the tension that was going on after Absalom's defeat. There were some uh, people in Israel who wanted now to bring David back and to reinstall him to the throne. There were others who were not so sure. And so while they were kind of dilly-dallying and deciding what they wanted to do, David takes the initiative. And David reaches out to his own tribe, the tribe of Judah, and he says, you need to be the ones who bring me back. We see also in verse 14, or excuse me, verse 13, that he promotes Amasa, who had just fought on Absalom's side, and he makes him his top general instead of Joab, even though he had just fought against him on Absalom's side. We don't know the reasons why he does this. Maybe he's trying to extend an olive branch to those who had fought against him. To let them know, to signal to them that he would not hold it against them. Perhaps, though, he's trying to get back at Joab for disobeying his orders and killing his son Absalom. Or maybe, as I believe, it was a little bit of both. In verse 14, it says, The men of Judah hear David's plea, and they respond with one heart, with one voice, that they wanted him to return. And so David makes his way to the Jordan River. The men of Judah come down and meet him there to escort the king on his journey back to Jerusalem. There's so much to learn as David makes this return trip. We've already learned about the safety of the kingdom. We've already learned about the sadness of the king. But now, let's learn from the salvation of the king's subjects. Starting in verse 18, we're going to meet some of the very same people that David met on the other trip, on his way out of Jerusalem. Now he meets some of these same people on his way back. This is almost like the mirror trip to the one before. There's really three main people that David meets on this return journey, and the first is Shimei. And we can learn from Shimei that those who are saved by the king are those who have run to the king for mercy 
confessing their sins. Now, if you don't remember Shimei, he was the guy back in chapter 16 who was a little, uh, shall we say, weasel of a man who walked along this ridge above David's head as he was walking out of Jerusalem into exile, barefoot and, and weeping. And this little man is walking above him and he's, he's cursing David. He's throwing stones down on David's head, literally throwing stones on David's soldiers. He's saying, David, you are such a bloodthirsty man. You're such a terrible human being. Now you're getting exactly what you deserve from the Lord. If you remember at the time, one of David's men, a soldier named Abishai, said, David, let me just go and take off his head to get him to stop talking. And David showed a lot of restraint and said, no, this is a part of God's discipline of my life to hear him cursing like this. Maybe the Lord will hear him cursing and will turn it around for my blessing. And of course, by this time, that is precisely what God has done. And so now, Shimei realizes, uh uh-oh, I thought that David was a goner. I thought that Absalom was going to be the king, and now Absalom is dead. David is still the king, and I'm the guy who cursed him. And I'm the guy who literally threw stones on his head when he was at his lowest moment. And what does that mean for me? It means I'm a dead man walking. And so he decides, I have got to run as fast as I can down to David. I have got to meet him at the Jordan River. I have got to throw myself down at his feet and grovel and say, please, 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 pretty please don't kill me. And that's what he does. Let's look at it. Chapter 19 Starting at the end of verse 18, Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he had crossed the Jordan. And he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord, the king, left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know that I have sinned. Therefore, here I am, the first to come today of all of the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord, the king. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What what do I have to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? For do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. So here is Shimei, right? And he's coming to David and he's saying, come on, King David, let's let bygones be bygones. I mean, yes, I was wrong. I sinned against you, but but, but I'm the first one to come to greet you today. Let's, let's, Let's bury the hatchet. Don't do anything rash. Don't take it to heart. And he also tries to bolster his case a little bit because back in verses 16 and 17, we find out he didn't just come alone. He brought a thousand people from the tribe of Benjamin with him. And so the idea is here, I've rallied the troops for you, right? Here's all these other people who are ready to embrace you and receive you back as the king. You wouldn't want to do anything to upset them, would you? And so why don't you just forgive me and and just let's act like it never happened. Of course, here is Abishai again, right? In verse 21, he's he's like, all right, you didn't let me kill him last time. Surely you're going to let me kill him today. But again, David shows restraint And he pardons Shimei in verse 22. He says, look, I I know that I'm the king. I'm secure in that. 
And neither Shimei or anybody else needs to be executed because the Lord has given me the kingdom back. Before I move on to how this applies to us, I do just want to share a couple of things with us. First off, I don't believe that Shimei's confession was sincere in the slightest. I think that Shimei was a snake in the grass, but as one person put it, even snakes don't want to die. And I believe his confession was as phony as a $3 bill. He's just saying what he needs to say in order to try to save his neck. Also, we need to understand this, that while David does pardon Shimei here, he doesn't really forgive him, and we know that. And we know that because in 1 Kings 2, right before David dies, he calls his son Solomon over and he says, Now son, you remember that little man Shimei that cursed me that day when I walked out of town? Remember how I told him that I would never kill him? And I haven't. But Solomon, you know what to do. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, right? And Solomon comes up with a way to dispatch of Shimei, right? And and so we know from that, right? David pardons him here. He shows restraint here. He doesn't actually forgive him. And so with all of that in mind, this this isn't really a a full-fledged confession followed by a forever forgiveness like the Lord's forgiveness, right? This is a half-hearted confession followed by a short-term pardon. But nonetheless, Shimei does give us, albeit faintly, a picture of what we all need to do. We have all sinned against our king. And we need to run to him at the river before he returns. And we need to bow down and fall down before him and confess our sins. Not half-heartedly like Shimei did, but with a broken heart. A true heart of forgiveness. And when we do that, isn't it amazing that just like David pardons him here, despite all he had done, that God pardons our sin and he forgives us with a forever forgiveness. Makes me think of another man who met the Lord on a road. He was on his way to take some Christians and round them up and throw them into jail, but the Lord met him there a man named Saul, and transformed him by his grace and turned him into the man we know as the Apostle Paul. And this is what Paul later wrote to Timothy. He said, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I can say the same. I'm the chief of all sinners. Yet, when I confess my sin to the Lord, he forgave even me. I hope you can say that. Because it doesn't matter what we have done. The Lord's grace is sufficient to cover us. But we have to come. We have to fall down before him and confess our sins to the king. Let's pick up the story where we left off in verse 24 of chapter 19. It says, Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. And so it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. 
But my Lord, the King, is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my Lord, the King. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of this matter? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Then Mephibosheth said to the king, Rather, let him take it all. Inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. Here we read about Mephibosheth, the grandson of King Saul, the son of David's friend Jonathan, who was lame in his feet and could not walk. And from his story, we can learn this. We can learn that those who are saved by the king are those who are faithful to do what they can to serve the king. When David was fleeing Jerusalem, one of the people who came out to meet him was Mephibosheth's servant, this man named Ziba. And Ziba showed up with two donkeys loaded down with all kinds of goods to give to David as a gift. And if you remember Ziba's story, Ziba's story was that the reason why Mephibosheth had not come with him is because he had turned traitor. That he had gone over to Absalom's side and he was staying back in Jerusalem because he thought maybe he was going to get to be the king after all of this was said and done. That's what Ziba said. David believed every word of it. And David, in a, in a snap decision, said, well, everything that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours, Ziba. <clears throat> and now we find out that everything that Ziba said was a lie. Even Mephibosheth's appearance should have told David that. As he walks up, he, he, he's looking like a, like a middle school boy, Pastor Blaine, that's been at camp for three weeks, right? He's not, he hasn't taken a bath, right? He hasn't washed his clothes. He hasn't trimmed his toenails, Right? He's just kind of let himself go. And see, so even though physically he was not able to go into exile with David, in his spirit he has been in exile since the day that David left town. In verse 25, David doesn't know what to believe. And he says, why didn't you go with me? That's when Mephibosheth tells him, my, my servant Ziba, he tricked me. I, I loaded up this saddle and he t- this donkey with a, with a saddle and all these goods and he took it. And he left me behind, and I had no way to get to you. And he, he slandered me to you. He said stuff to you that is not true, but, but I'm loyal to you. David, again, not knowing who to believe, only halfway walks back what he had decided before. And he says, all right, well, you two just split it. He takes half, and you take half. And then you really hear Mephibosheth's heart in verse 30. Look at what he says there. He says, rather let him take it all. Inasmuch as my Lord the King has come back in peace to his own house. Mephibosheth might have been lame, but he was loyal. He couldn't walk, he couldn't go places, but he did what he could to honor the King. It reminds me of the woman in Mark 14 who came into the room and took an alabaster flask of perfume and anointed Jesus before his death and his burial. And some of the people who were there didn't like it. They said, what a waste. And Jesus said, you leave her alone. And what she did to me was a beautiful thing. And then, she, then he said this about her. He said, she has done what she could. Friend, what about you? What about, what about me? Are we doing what we can to honor the Lord like this woman did, like Mephibosheth did. Maybe you say, well, well, I'm limited in the way that I can serve the Lord. I'm limited by my age. 
I'm limited by my mobility. I'm I'm limited by the amount of resources that I have. I I don't have the gifts and the talents that some other people have that I see. I can't serve the Lord the way that they serve the Lord. But maybe instead of focusing on what we can't do, we need to focus on what we can do. Let's do what we can to honor the Lord like Mephibosheth. Let's do it as an act of worship to him. Friend, what is the Lord calling you to do? for him right now. Let's read the final part of our story for today, verse 31 to 39. And Barzillai, the Gileadite, came down from Rogalim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mehenim, for he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be a further burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king, and do for him what seems good to you. The king answered, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. And he returned to his own place. Here's the last truth that I want us to see today. Those who are saved by the king are those who will one day be astonished at the undeserved goodness of the king's reward. Final character that we meet here is this elderly man named Barzillai. If you were here last time, you might remember that Barzillai and two other guys came to David on the eve of his battle against his son Absalom, and they brought him all sorts of resources, all sorts of food. They brought it as a blessing to him. And we shared last week that we need to remember that Barzillai did all of this when the battle had not yet been decided. Right when, when it looked like King David was going to lose, when it looked like Absalom was going to take over and, and rout him, in the midst of that, this man came and he took sides. And he was loyal and faithful to the true anointed king. Christian, right now you and I are being called to do the same. Being a Christ follower today in America isn't very popular, is it? In fact, Following Christ might result in you receiving some persecution. It might result in you receiving some mockery. It might result in you losing a promotion or two. But will you follow your king even when it seems like most people are against him? And will you be faithful to the one who died for you and rose again? Back in our story, Barzillai, despite being 80 years of age, he wants to walk down with David to the river and help him across escort him partway back to Jerusalem. David wants to thank him. And so in verse 33, David says, come all the way back to Jerusalem with me. Let me take care of you. I'll put you up in the palace. You'll be my guest for the rest of your life. But Barzillai kindly declines. He wasn't doing what he did for a reward. And in verse 35, he says, David, I'm so old now. I I can't hear anything. 
I mean, I can't even taste anything. He said, you could give me a honey-baked ham, and it would taste like spam to me. I, I can't tell the difference. And so why should I be a burden to you? Well, let me just go back to my house and die there with the rest of my family. But he says, I want you to take one of my servants, Kim Ham, and take him with you to the palace. Many people believe, believe that Kim Ham was one of Barzillai's own children. And if that's the case, what a powerful picture this is of what every Christian parent and grandparent should want. Near the end of this man's life, all he cares about is that his children are serving the king. I pray that that is all that we care about, that we don't care about having a big house or a fancy car, but we care that our kids will walk through life with the king and that they will spend all eternity with him in the new Jerusalem. The final verse of our text, verse 39, King David and Barzillai part ways. David kisses him on the head and blesses him. And this, this whole final scene just reminds me of the judgment day of a faithful Christ follower who has served the king in their lives. In Matthew 25, this is what Jesus said about those who invest what God gives them into the Lord's service. The Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Christian, isn't that what it's all about? Hearing our Lord say those beautiful words on the brink of eternity. What an astounding, undeserved reward for sinners like you and me to hear our Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant. This story was about the return of the king. And one day, the story of this whole world will end with the return of the king. The return of the son of David, King Jesus. But the question is, friend, are you ready for his return? Here's the final statement I want us to think about today. Look at these words. What the return of the king will mean for you then depends on your response to the king now. Let me say that one more, once more time. What the return of the king will mean for you then depends on your response to the king now. I want to ask you to stand and I want to give you a chance even now to respond to the king if you have never responded to him before. Your king loves you. Your king went to a cross and died for you to pay for your sin and to pay for mine. When he rose again on the third day, the king invites you to come. He, he offers you grace and forgiveness and mercy, but we have to come with that broken heart that we talked about. We have to come and confess our, our sins and receive him as our Lord and our Savior. And Friend, maybe you're here today and this is the first time you've ever heard about how much God loves you, what Jesus Christ, your king, has done for you. And you want to receive him as your Savior and your Lord. I want to invite you to come right now, speak with me about that, or one of the other pastors that you see standing here. And we'd love to pray with you about that. You come, God speaks to your heart.